0: I'm Ed Adams, and you're listening to The AFCA Podcast. Welcome to another episode of The AFCA Podcast. And today, we're discussing one of the most important figures in black entertainment history you've probably never heard of. I'll tell you who right after the break. The AFCA podcast is sponsored by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. For five years, from 1968 to 1973, the nation got an unprecedented look at black culture. Each week, Ellis Hayslip brought critical thinkers, artists, and performers into America's living rooms on his popular television show, Soul. That's with an exclamation point on the end, by the way. Hayslip, the producer and host of the weekly show, brought black iconoclasts like Stokely Carmichael, Muhammad Ali, James Baldwin, and Nika Giovanni, as well as artists like Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, Al Green, and Ashford and Simpson, just to name a few, an opportunity to speak their mind and perform, giving the television audience a definitive explanation of, as the show title suggests, soul. Now, a new documentary about Ellis Hayslip and his groundbreaking show is making the festival circuit, and it is a must-see. Mr. Soul is the name of the film, and it is written, directed, and co-produced by Ellis' niece, Melissa Hayslip. I had a chance to speak to Melissa via Skype as she was preparing to present her film at the New Orleans Film Festival. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your project, Mr. Soul.
1: Of course. So happy to be here, Ed.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So tell me, how did this documentary project come about?
1: Well, it was actually a long time in the making, Ed. Um, We started about 10 years ago. And with the idea of creating, actually started as a book, I thought this is an important idea about a television show that was really important in terms of the history and the annals of, you know, the the pantheon of television shows, if you will, but it's a little overlooked. So I thought it would be important to write sort of an academic book about the series. But then I realized, well, this is such a visual medium and the show was so visual and the importance of seeing black culture on television was really the the takeaway from the show. So I thought it's important to make a film about it. So that people can see it. And these beautiful archival episodes, which have been in the vaults for 40, 50 years, needed to be brought to light. So I decided then and there to make a documentary about it. And it took a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot of fundraising, because we basically started from scratch. You know, this is an unusual project in that we didn't have the support of a studio and we didn't have the guarantee of a broadcast. We just had a great idea and decided to go with it anyway. And so we basically started from the ground up, you know, building momentum, building a concept, building a team, bringing together some of the most amazing filmmakers we could find and then creating the story and, and figuring out how we could get people to participate in it, especially people who are celebrities now so Hmm. it's it's been a rather remarkable and unusual journey for me especially as an african-american and independent and woman director producer
0: oh i can i can only imagine that journey i mean 10 years in the making but i mean before we get into the movie tell us a little bit about your about your uncle ellis
1: Sure. Ellis Hazelip was an enigma. He was such an unusual person. Um, well, first of all, he's a D.C. native, so he's from the DMV. He grew up in Washington, D.C., and born in 1929, so he came up in the 30s. And um, he was raised in the church and also, you know, in the local area of Deanwood, northeast. He went to uh, Carver Elementary. He also went to dunbar high school and then he went to howard university so he's a true bison and um, came up wanting to be in the theater and to produce and to create amazing content for black culture so he did a little bit of that and began dabbling in theater and producing plays and working with um, the alvin ailey company when it first in its infancy and producing plays at the ymca in harlem and got really involved in New York as an established uh, producer, and then he went over to Europe and produced. So the timing was right for him when he came back to the States to become, he was sort of positioned and uniquely positioned to host a television show that didn't exist yet. The concept was, what is this thing called a, you know, a black tonight show? Is there a way that we can create that? And so that's how he initially became involved. But what was unique about him was that he was such a lover of black culture. He had an undiluted love for our people, an undying love. And so he was all about uplifting the race and just showing another side of our culture that hadn't been seen. He was also um, unapologetically gay and and uh, you know queer. Which was unusual for the time for you know a person of his stature to be out like that. We have to remember that was the you know 60s, di- very different time here, tumultuous yeah. time. So it, it really combined to make him a unique person. He was beloved and has become like a queer icon, but he also you know really broke boundaries for the culture.
0: Now, Soul is it's not really a one-note show. I mean, it, you mentioned like a, a Black Tonight show, but, but it, was, it was so much more. It was like it was cultural and it was political and it was also educational, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And we, I usually say Black Tonight show because that gets people's attention. They're like, huh? You know, because they can't <laughs> believe. And then I say, well, let's put it this way. It's the greatest show you've never heard of. And they're like, oh, okay, tell me more. So that's usually how I introduce it. But the truth is the show was not only was it a vehicle for African-American artistry, but like you said, it was a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice. So that was like not the trifecta we knew, especially not in the 60s, you know, when black people weren't represented on television. So inadvertently it came to represent diversity, what we now call diversity and inclusion. But it was a an amazing melange of politics, you know, activism. The Black Panthers were on there. Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Touré, um, also people like Kathleen Cleaver. But then also he would have musicians for the first time. Who hadn't been seen. You know, they'd been heard, or if you're lucky enough to go to the Apollo or the Chitlin circuit, you would certainly know about these artists. But to see them on television for the first time, that was revolutionary. Folks like Earth, Wind, and Fire, Al Green, Patti LaBelle, and the Bluebells.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, mm-hmm. it was really unusual. And jazz musicians whom you wouldn't necessarily see on television from. Um, Herbie Hancock and his M. DC lineup to Mingus was on there, <laughs> yeah. believe it or not. T.S. Monk and T.S. Monk Jr., his son on drums. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, M. Boom, um, Lee Morgan. You know, it was just an extraordinary group of artists. And then he would have literary icons like... Nikki Giovanni interviewing James Baldwin for a two-hour special in London. I mean, this just was not even possible at the time. So it was breaking precedence all over the place.
0: So let's let's get into that. So yeah. So ex- this is a show, like you said, this is one of the greatest shows that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> how how why is that the case? Like explain think, why this know, is a thing. I
1: know it's it's hard to explain, but I I, I chalk it up to. Two things, Ed. Actually, ten, but I'll I'll, I'll break it down to two. (laughs) We don't have that much time. Okay, so there are two very big factors to consider. One is that the show was recorded live, which was unprecedented at the time and just kind of normal because it was a local show that then had the advantage of falling under the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967 which was enacted in 1968. Then that's when the public broadcasting channels became, you know, almost like a network, but it it's not a network, but it was a group of channels that came together to form PBS. So what was a lot of PBS stations were doing was they were they had live television shows. This particular show was live. So it was very different from Soul Train. It came before Soul Train. But when you have a live show, the concept of preserving a live show in 1968 had not yet entered the public consciousness. The idea of preserving something that was live, just like, you know, in the beginning of like television, the idea of watching sports on television was a was sort of fleeting. You would watch a game just like you would experience a game, and then it would be done. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, they didn't think about archiving those old games, which now, thank God, you know, ESPN has made a fortune off of that with all their football stations and everything. Yeah. You can watch vintage games, and you can watch these epic games that have gone down in history. Well, the idea was the Soul Show was live. They taped it after the first broadcast. They repeated it on Sunday nights, and then they threw it out. Wow. Because they figured, well, who's going to want to see a show that actually happened live, right? Who's going to want to see that because it's not live anymore? So they didn't really know to value that those shows needed to be archived as well. And the whole notion of preservation, like I said, hadn't yet come to the fore. You know, preservation really started in the late 80s in terms of people realizing how important it was, especially to preserve film. But the concept of live shows was not really in the zeitgeist preserving them and so what would happen was they were on these clunky you know three inch tapes giant reels that were expensive and took up a lot of space quite literally stacking them so they would either destroy them heartbreak as that is (sighs) tape over them or they would simply be lost so the first couple of seasons had Like the first season had 39 shows, fantastic shows. The only reason they have access to three episodes from that season in 1968 is because the f- a clip from the first episode was the very first musical performance with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Mm-hmm. Ellis Hayes thought to record that and keep it as a memento because he wanted to show it at the end of the year when they did a look back at their first season. Then there was also... An episode from the fifth, the fifth episode, which is fantastic, with the last poets
2: mm-hmm. doing
1: their incendiary poetry at the time. And that was submitted for an, an Emmy consideration. So that that one got saved. And then the last episode of the first season, there are clips from that. And those are included in the film. It wasn't until like the the end of the second season going on into the third when the show was getting better. The artists were co- were on the show were more famous. The production value started to increase. That they realized, wow, we should really keep these. But I've actually seen memos in which Ellis Hazel had to choose. He was given a list of episodes and had to choose which ones he wanted to erase.
0: Oh, my
2: God. When
1: I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, that's like Sophie's Choice. <laughs> And, you know, you liken that to what's happening now in current times in, in the issues of erasure of our culture. You Absolutely. Know, materialistically, realistically, and hypothetically, you know. So, yeah, so that's kind of why there aren't a lot from the very beginning. Okay. And then also the second reason I would say is because This moment and the advent of colored television, the beginning of public television, there was a lot happening. And so people, it all happened sort of before the 70s and before syndication became an idea, a concept. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time we got to What's Happening and and, uh, Sanford and Son and all the, Flip Wilson and all the shows that were actually integrating the networks, syndication had begun. And so the other thing is, remember, they didn't have VCRs back then. So people didn't have a way of recording what they saw. So I think that whole sort of zeitgeist or, or you know, combination of circumstances led to the fact that the show was kind of lost and forgotten in a way that it shouldn't have been. And then the, the presenting station, WNET, basically just kept it in their vaults. Remember, there's a lot of artists on the show, too, so to do anything with the content would require a lot of rights uh, issues. Right. And so I also think that they were safely stored away, because nobody could really afford to do anything with them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Rights and pub- you know, publishing rights, music rights, artist appearance, all that costs money absolutely so it just kind of got tucked away and and the timing of it happening before the 70s made people sort of skip over it and then once the 70s launched that's when all the awareness kind of kicked in so i really think it was just just in that little pocket right before folks started to get savvy as to what was important
0: that does that make sense it does it does it's it's tragic in a, in a, in, in a way, but it it but it, it makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, a combination
1: you're... of factors. I think also, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Remember, it is about black culture, and there's a certain reluctance to value that, especially black art, music, and dance, at a time when you know just post civil rights and post Jim Crow, folks weren't really checking for us, if you pardon the phrase. No, you know? I do. I mean, the,
0: and, the fact that and, this and show and not, not
1: recognizing you know dance black dance especially and and culture as being high art you know it's taken so long for it to be qualified as such and we all know this but you know thank god things are starting to shift and change and we are demanding that shift and that change
2: absolutely but even
1: now we have to fight for that in terms of equality of our you know culture being perceived as high art and culture when we all know we're doing the job leading the culture with the music and everything we do
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: i think Ellis hazel knew that he knew that black culture was american culture that it led it didn't pull it led the way and influenced everything and we see that now absolutely so obvious (laughs) from hip-hop being the dominant culture, impacting everything music, fashion, you know
0: so i just I guess a question would be, having seen the movie now to to kind of understand who he was and and how much of a of a mentor he was to culture to black culture, um, one of the things I think is kind of interesting, and I just wanted your perspective on it is uh, you kind of highlighted a little bit of it is um, that impact of how culture really does lead. Um, and, and affirms black uh, our blackness, and I think that was something that you see very clearly in your documentary. Um, and to answer, to ask the question for this is when I was watching the film, I did notice that there's really kind of three stories happening at once. I don't know if that was intentional. Yes, yeah,
2: that's correct. Yeah. yeah,
0: but it was it, it's you know there's 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 the show itself, you know you know soul, and then there's Ellis the 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 kind of cultural curator. And then there's also, you know, Ellis the man. Uh, That's you...
1: correct. Yes, you nailed it. Hooray. Boom. I know how to do my job. <laughs> doing
0: my job. Just doing my job.
1: Awesome. You get a raise. <laughs> I demand it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay (laughs) you the rate. No, let me stop. So yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. And that is what makes this a unique story. And that is part of the reason it was so hard to get people's attention. It was hard to fund. It was hard to describe. Because I was telling people, this is really a hybrid. What I'm doing is not straight-up historical documentary. And certainly not straight-up biopic. What I wanted to do was I knew that Ellis Hazlitt's personality and his place in the world uniquely impacted the caliber, quality, and pedigree of the show. So I said, we have to really, in effect, create a biography of the man and a biography of the show and figure out how those two interweave. And we're only going to drop in on these five years, 1968 to 1973. And if we can pull that off, it'll be a really unique and different type of documentary. And that was always my goal. So the way that we made it, it's pretty unique as well, because we realized we're actually telling three stories. So we created three separate storylines. Now, for all those uh, filmmakers out there or, you know, film heads or geeks or anybody interested, I'll try to keep it short, but... You could call it a storyline, a timeline, in in film parlance we'd say a sequence, or a string out. So we had, but for for just the regular folks listening, because I know we're out here, um, we had storyline A, so the storyline A was the story of soul. The five seasons of soul from 68 to 73, from its very inception to its rise and heyday to the uh, you know, against the backdrop of a swiftly political changing landscape to the demise of soul and the cancellation. So mm. that's storyline A, from start to finish, and what you see in storyline A are the most essential clips of soul, the best performances, the things we can't live without, the archival elements that really tell the story and that are, that just really sing, really beautiful. Then we have storyline B, which is the story of Ellis Hazlip. Again, not Cradle to the Grave, because that's not the doc we're making, but who is he in these five years? How does he go from being like a fish out of water, terrible host, reluctant host, to sort of putting his unique stamp on the show as the show changes and grows, and he changes as a man and evolves as a host? That's storyline B. The last one is storyline C. That would be the zeitgeist. What's happening in the culture. What's happening to the black folks? What is our journey in America? You know, what's happening that impacts the show, that sort of changes how we see the show, you know, from Vietnam to the women's movement to the black liberation to the Black Panthers and activism? So that zeitgeist is the five years from 68 to 73. So now we have three different storylines, and believe it or not, three different movies that we cut over the course of a year and a half. Oh, wow. And we had to figure out How do we then collapse, as we say in film, how do we collapse those three stories into one story and find the salient points of all three and make sure that they match up? And that was the challenge. That's Hmm. how we made the film. And that's why it took so long.
2: (laughs) (laughs) In the edit room
1: especially, you know, because we had to be honest about, well, we have three different stories. How can we make them into one story? And so everything informs itself.
2: You know, um, and every
1: clip and every song has to earn its way into this story. Does it help tell our story? I mean, yeah, I want to put ten Al Green songs in there, but I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so can I have two Al Green songs? You know, can I just get one yeah. rib? What what can I have here? <laughs> um, so that was really key. Like how are we gonna Choose. You know, that's Sophie's Choice analogy again. Mm -hmm. How do you choose? Do I have to choose between Al and Stevie Wonder? Or can I tell the story of soul and Ellis Hazelip and the the journey of our people through music, through song, and through Ellis Hazelip's eyes? Oh, wow. And that's what we did.
0: Okay. So uh, since you've been on this journey for quite some time, I mean, we're talking about a decade of you really immersing yourself into understanding not just the show, but also, you know, uh, stories about your your uncle. um, How has this affected your relationship with understanding him and his impact on the culture and this TV show?
1: It's really broadened my world because, you know, it's been I've had to wear many hats. I'm the director of the film, but I'm also the producer of the film and also the writer of the film but of course you know you wear even more hats when you're an independent filmmaker and you have a very small team and usually not enough funding to pull it all together so you end up doing everything and trying to figure out how you can get as much as you need to to accurately tell the story and to also build relationships with people to help you tell that story but the relationships we needed to build were between celebrities, <laughs> because everybody's famous now, and so that that was a real challenge. But the beauty that I learned, the beauty of a story that I learned about Ellis was that he had so many relationships anyway that he had people loved him not for what he could do for them, but for the relationships that they had, which they treasured. And so I I learned what a big impact he had made personally, in people's lives. And then when all I had to do was ask them to tell the story, they were right back there immediately in the present tense. That blew me away. That really um, surprised me that people's feelings were right underneath the surface. And so what you get in the film is this very intimate insight into this person. And you realize that he managed to have really sincere and significant Relationships with artists, writers, and that he continued to mentor people throughout his life, even after, to this day, people cite him as helping them or, you know, the boards, building institutions and the importance of continuing those institutions that all rest on his shoulders. So it was continually just eye-opening to me and and, uh, like a gift that keeps giving.
2: Oh, wow. I learned
1: some, I still learn something new about him every uh, day. And uh, I just am amazed at his capacity for love and for our culture. So I'm so happy the film is coming out so people can see that. Not to pat him on the back, but to see how we can impact one another and how we can make change, because we really need that today. And that's why this story is important today. All of our stories are important, really. Yeah,
2: yeah. Wow. But
1: especially now in terms of this horrible administration that we're in and the representation that we're lacking, the freedom and the erasure that's going on and the appropriation of our culture, mm-hmm. we need to be reinforced like this. Yeah. We need to know that there was always black excellence, not just now that we're, we're you know, that's a hashtag. No, that there, we were always beautiful and we were always excellent. And we need to do that again now. We might not have that same movement. We might mm-hmm. not have the black, you know, the black arts movement or the civil rights movement or Jim Crow to push back against. But we have enough movements now. We have Black Lives Matter. We have you know, Me Too and, and Time's Up. But again, we shouldn't just need movements and hashtags to move us forward. We have to realize how much we really contribute to this culture at large. So that's what I've learned from from my journey throughout this film. And that was a really long answer, but
0: (laughs) it was a a beautiful answer. It was a beautiful answer. I mean, you've been you've been showing this film around the country now. Um, What has been some of the feedback and some of the stories that you can share uh, with people talking to you about this film?
1: You know, I want to share with you a message I received on Instagram because it's my favorite one. You know, we're all over the place. Got to feed the gram daily. (laughs) Um, but, uh, (laughs) But what's really amazing to me has been the reaction from younger folks. You know, I know there's the older folks who've been dying to see this again because after the show kind of disappeared from the networks and the zeitgeist, and you know they tried very hard to keep it off of youtube as well so that the content wouldn't be exploited because there's a lot of it out there that's out that's like bootleg out there anyway but trust me none of it was mine okay. um but what i found from young people was the importance of seeing this and how it has impacted them to be inspired so here's a message that i received on instagram uh just after a screening and it just blew me away i'm going to read it to you verbatim because i think it's best if it doesn't sound like it's me and it um it goes like this let me find it hi mr soul i saw this movie screen at the la film festival which was just on september um, 26 by the way the other night and i was blown away i studied theater film and black history throughout college and I had never heard of Ellis Hazlip, nor the Soul TV show. I was appalled and yet grateful to now have learned a new piece of history that I can share and incorporate in the great things I already know about my people. Thank you, Melissa and team, and thank you, Ellis Hazlip. By preserving our history and telling our stories, you've inspired another generation. Wow. So, like goosebumps, hair standing up. Yeah. Even now, as I read that to you, it's standing right up. You cannot see it, but it's up. This is what keeps me going. This, I literally stopped in my tracks and started crying. Oh man! Because I realized, wow, okay, yes.
0: You're you're literally yes. picking up on your your on your uncle's legacy and and moving it forward.
1: Well, I had no intention of doing that. I just felt like I was the vessel to push the show and push the story forward.
0: I don't know. But to realize that... uh... (laughs) I think it's something about the name. I think it's something about the
2: name. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) this is what matters to me, you know, that a young person would just, just a completely random person I had only just met, you know, I try to connect with everybody on the gram and tell them to reach out and stuff. And that they said that. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: That blew me away. So yeah, that's exactly what I hope for us. I hope that we can inspire a new generation. I hope that we can show the beauty and the fabulousness. You know, Ellis was really curating the culture. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. And even though it was highly controversial and sort of unorthodox for its time, you know, because it because basically of its political content and the and the fact that it was empowering the black race which had been Completely oppressed, you know. Now, if you look back, you can really appreciate Ellis Hayes' um, intentional curation mm-hmm. of of the black experience, and and the fact that it's a broad spectrum of the black experience and black expression. It's not just saying, "Hey, we are R&B," or "Hey, we're we're all about you know black power." It was saying, "No, look at the complexity of who we are." And this is a true mirror of who we are. I, I don't see that today. Mm-hmm. And so if in making this film, we can give people a chance to see it is possible, then I've done my job.
0: Well, you've done an amazing job. So what's next for the project? I mean, when will people, it's October now, uh, when will people be able to see this in the theaters?
1: Yeah, well, that's what we're working on. We're working on a deal and we're trying to what they call actually sell the film. And that means that a distributor will pick it up and make sure that it gets out in theaters, make sure that it has an educational outreach, which is really important, educational distribution so it can be seen in, in um, universities and it can also be seen on, or used as, a, as part of the uh, you know criteria for classes mm-hmm. as curriculum or in the libraries of different institutions. And then, of course, we wanted to have a PBS broadcast and we wanted to have an international uh, release and, of course, a streaming release on a platform similar to or, you know, something like Netflix, Hulu, Facebook or something like that streaming. So that's our goal. It's a very ambitious goal, but we want it to be seen by as many people as possible.
0: Uh, and it should be and it really should yeah. be it really should but be but right
1: now we have a really robust fall schedule for the festivals because that's the best way to get out we're we're screening in New Orleans today and then we're on our way to London uh to do the British Film Institute BFI in London and then we'll be back and we'll be screening in Memphis we'll be opening the Indie Memphis Festival on November 1st and we'll be screening in St. Louis And we're coming back to New York to screen at NYU. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of really great screenings coming up. The best way to keep up with that is on our, our Instagram page or Twitter or Facebook, and our website is being updated.
0: Okay, okay, awesome.
1: So you can find us at Mr. Soul the Movie just about anywhere.
0: Okay, good to know. Well, Melissa, thank you again for talking with us about your amazing documentary, Mr. Soul.
1: Thank you, Ed. It's fantastic being here, and I just encourage everyone to try to get out and see it. And, uh, you know, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Mr. Movie, and we'd love to hear from you, and uh, thank you so much.
0: And that's our show. Thanks again to Melissa Hayslip for sharing this important hidden figure of our American pop culture. You can find out more about Melissa and the film, Mr. Soul, by visiting their website at Mr.SoulMovie.com and on Twitter at MrSoulTheMovie. And if you'd like to know more about the African American Film Critics Association and the work that we do, visit us at AFCA.com or check us out at TheAFCA on Twitter. So until next time, keep your head up.